Welcome to Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. My name is Josh Lyons. I've been listening to Hardcore and Punk since 1995. I have book shows, put out a fanzine, run a record label, and now I'm doing a podcast. This is the Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. Welcome to Episode 5. Today we have a conversation with Buffalo's own Bill Page. I switched the format and you can find all the music at the end of the episode now. As always, you can find us on the web at EnterpriseHardcorePodcast.com. On Instagram and Facebook, it's Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. On Twitter, it's at Podcast Hardcore. We're streaming on a number of different platforms. Check the website for more info. Stay tuned for the interview after I tell you a little bit about Anchor. I first met Bill Page when he was fronting the band Lockjaw. As you will learn from this interview, Bill has been in many bands over the years. Make sure you check out the new record from Bill's band, Wrong the Oppressor. It's streaming now, and it's called Our Dreams Are Meant to Die. CDs can be ordered from Classic Core Records, and the vinyl will be available soon on Press Gang Records. All right, so how has this pandemic affected you and your family? Well, my wife's not working at all. She works in the service industry. She does. She caters like uh, big events at a hotel over here. And they've had, like, all their weddings get canceled, so she's unemployed. Um, I have three kids, two of which are in school, and now they're not. So they're doing, like, the homeschooling um, for, like, an hour a day at theater. Um, I've I've generally been working. I've been off a little more often, but only for, like, a couple weeks here and there. Um, but in a lot of ways things aren't really that different except we like to do a lot of stuff and so we haven't been able to do it so um we, we're trying to find alternatives right no that that makes sense now i think it's probably a little harder for your kids for you kind of to explain to your kids because they can actually understand whereas like my son just misses going to daycare like have your kids had any trouble adapting to this at all or are they cool with staying home all the time they like staying home. The, um, the the oldest one, my oldest daughter, Daphne, she's nine. So she misses her friends. Um, you know, her and her sister, they both, they both had their birthdays during this. So, you know, they weren't able to see everybody. And it's just been very small uh, birthdays only with us at home. And, like, their grandma, my mom, would, like, drop a present on the porch for them and say hi through the door. So that, that part's been a little bit tough, especially because they have cousins that are at my parents' house and they can't really see them. And they'd usually see them a lot more often. Um, in general, they're doing pretty well with it. But again, and they get kind of bored because again, we usually do a lot more. And that's, you know, that's just things like going to like the science museum, going to playgrounds, the zoo and we can't do stuff like that right now yeah no we're in the same boat because you know we had a zoo membership last year and we, we were going to get a museum membership this year and now it's, that's all on hold now obviously um yeah. and the porch the porch visits have been have been pretty rough too my girlfriend's parents they were coming over every couple of days for a while but now they mainly just facetime and i think i think like my son doesn't really understand that and the my girlfriend's parents are kind of you know missing him obviously but Hopefully things will improve in a little bit and we'll get back to somewhat of a normal life, I guess. Um, yeah. So I guess, so I guess shifting beer, gears a little bit, um, tell me about your upbringing and what led, you, what, what led you into the world of hardcore. Well, I, I started off um, listening, I guess the, 
I'm trying to think where to start with that. I guess, you know, there's, a, you know, everything about my childhood was pretty normal. Um, there, there's nothing like, you know, I have awesome parents. They've always been very supportive and helpful with anything I wanted to do. Um, I actually, even though I'm not a sports person, my dad, uh, was always a coach. He liked coached hockey before I was born. He was still coaching hockey after I wasn't playing anymore. So it's like during like grade school, I played a couple of years of hockey. I did a year in a bowling league, a couple of years of baseball. I played some basketball in high, well, junior high school. Um, and then around junior high is when I started getting into music and um, I really, it didn't take me long to kind of get, like my dad was really into like hard rock, like in classic rock, like the Beatles, Led Zeppelin. And so I'd hear that all the time. So it wasn't, I guess that doesn't make it too um, unusual that I would, being younger than just get into metal. I kind of like went into that, you know, I started getting into hard rock and then pretty soon I was just in the metal. Like I remember even like, I think I was like, seven or eight years old and seeing the Bark at the Moon video on MTV and I loved it. And Ozzy was like really like the first metal guy I really grasped onto. And then I just started getting into more extreme stuff. Like I, I would just buy albums because the covers looked cool. I, I picked up Slayer Live Undead because it had zombies on the cover. And then I was, um, you know, I'd watch the Headbangers Ball and on that I would see like DRI and Suicidal Tendencies which were more crossover. And then I was at a party and uh, there was a skinhead there and he brought Slapshot, Sudden Death Overtime. And that was the first time I ever heard a straight edge band. And I thought the music was awesome. And when I found out what they were all about, I was just like, like I was the only person at that party not drinking. So I was just like, all right, I'm into this. And, um, but at that time I started like getting into death metal and like my first few shows, like the first show I ever went to was the Goo Goo Dolls and they were more punk rock, but, um, a couple of Buffalo hardcore bands, Zero Tolerance and Trainwreck opened the show and I was into it. But again, I didn't really know what hardcore was. I, to me, it was just all like metal, you know? And, um, then I, uh, the next show I went to was just death metal. And I, for about a year, I went to mostly death metal shows, but hardcore bands would play like the club. I started going to shows at was the sky room and their last show again, zero tolerance played. And that was the first time I ever saw Snapcase. And, um, again, going to see metal bands, metal bands and hardcore bands would play together. I'd be picking up more hardcore bands. Cause like I said, I heard that slap shot, and I, you know, I went to Home of the Hits and bought their stuff. And then I, like, picked up Agnostic Front. So I was grabbing that stuff on the side, going to metal shows. And then um, the closest thing to, like, a real hardcore show I went to was um, there was this, band, this metal band called The Real Rulers. And they set up a show at this small club. But all the support bands were hardcore bands, which one was support, um, against all hope, and discontent. And that kind of really started opening up a whole different world for me. And then all the all-ages shows I started gravitating to more were just hardcore shows and slowly getting into it like that. Yeah, that makes sense. I think most people either had the up the, the path like you did with the metal or, or, or some people like me got into it through a punk and then realized that hardcore was more their speed or whatever. Uh, no pun intended, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
one one uh, one follow up to that, I guess, if you were, if you were going to a lot of death metal shows, were you were you a big Cannibal Corpse fan back then? And I guess if so, did you see them play at all? I I did see them play once. They played the they headlined the last show at the Sky Room. Um, we left during their set, even though I loved Eaten Back to Life. Um, like I it, I remember when that came out because when I was getting when I was getting into death metal, there was a college radio show on 91.3 called Metal Mayhem. And actually the first death metal band I heard was Deicide, because they played the song Deicide. And I picked up that cassette, and I loved it. And then there was, shortly around that time, there was an article in the local paper, the Buffalo News, because Cannibal Corpse was, rele- was releasing Eaten Back to Life, and it was coming out on Metal Blade Records. So that was a big deal. So I went to the Thruway Mall, and I bought it at Cabbage's, without even knowing what it sounded like. It was like, this is a Buffalo death metal band, and I haven't been to any shows yet, and I loved it. But in all honesty, in all honesty, live, I was never that impressed with them. I mean, they're a great band. Um, I really love Eating Back to Life and Butchered at Birth. And, and really, everything they've done is good, but they weren't a band that really held my interest. Right, right. No, that's understandable. Yeah, it's interesting, that era, too. Like, I, I, I got into it a couple years before the internet, and like it's interesting you would say that having found out about a band mainly through an ad that was or you know a record through an ad like nowadays kids can just go on spotify or any streaming service and listen to the music before they go into the store and buy it whereas you know we would see like one or two music videos if we were lucky or like you said hear the song on college radio you know but now it's like they got the world at their fingertips like literally you know so it's kind of different a different era obviously now um yeah. So I guess you played bass in more than half your bands. Um, when did you start playing bass, and, and did you play any instruments as a kid? Um, I started playing bass when I was around 13. I never really applied myself that much to it, so I wasn't very good. But um, from fourth grade through my senior year of high school, I played the trombone, and I was always in my school bands. All through high school, I was also in my school's jazz band playing trombone. And oh, even wow. though it was it even though it wasn't in the list of bands that I put on, because I only did a very brief stint doing trombone noise in Fat Boy. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I played trombone. And, uh, That's and cool, I yeah. Two bands very poorly. Yeah. yeah, Buffalo's always had an eclectic mix with, like, the noise and the, you know, all sorts of, all the ski mask projects, obviously, and stuff like that, too. Yeah. Um, so I guess kind of getting into your discography, um, I'm familiar with most of your bands, but uh, there's, a, there's a few exceptions. And the first one you listed, uh, Final Notice, I'd never heard of. So uh, tell me the backstory on that band. All right, that was the first band I was in that really played a show and recorded anything. Um, it, was, it started with me and my friend Chris. Um, he was the drummer. And we started a band with one of our other friends that never really panned out. And... Um, we were, I met uh, this girl, Michelle Butts, at um, the Corrosion and Conformity show at the Continental. They were touring blind. And, you know, we were telling her about our band, and she was like, well, you know, I play guitar. So she came down. Things didn't really work out with her, but she introduced us to her friend Bob, who also played guitar. And um, he ended up being uh, the guitar player in the band. And then he brought along he got us a singer and his second guitar player uh mike and jay uh jay was a singer and mike was a guitar player and those guys were more mike and bob were like metalheads and jay was more like he was more i guess all 
alternative. Like he he was more familiar. He was familiar with hardcore and punk into things like you know at the time Rollins Band and Nine Inch Nails, which we were into that stuff too. So you know it was definitely more. But we were just like, well, we want to be a hardcore band. And even those guys, they weren't really too unfamiliar with it because they were all from West Seneca, uh, which is where. Um, so they were friends with um, the guys in Snapcase and Against All Hope, who were all from West Seneca too. So they were all buddies with each other. So um, they were they were familiar enough with everything. And um, so you know we started playing. Um, it wouldn't be considered metalcore nowadays with what it was, but you know essentially it was just like a metal hardcore. And um, we recorded three demos. It was the first time I ever went to Watchman Studios. We recorded the first one and the last one in Doug White's basement, in his parents' basement when he had the studio there. <laughs> and uh, like I said, like even though it wasn't a great band, it was a lot of fun. It was a learning experience. It kind of, you know, it got our feet wet. And um, then ended up, when that kind of fell apart, it's what ended up leading to Half Mast starting. But were you in the original lineup of Half Mast, and how long did you play with them for? Yes, I act. I played with them for about the first half of their existence. They were around for they they were around for maybe four or five years, and I was in the band for the first two two and a half years. Um, how Half Mast started was, um, you know, the guitar players and the singer to file notice decided they didn't want to do it anymore. Which, you know, in, in a case like that, I guess it's pretty typical because everybody's kind of coming from, like, different ideas of what they want to do and what they're shooting for. And then me and Chris wanted to keep going. And I, my memory on how it started is a little fuzzy. But there was this band Clockwork that Nick Barron played guitar and sang for. And we dug their demo Somehow we knew Nick wasn't in the band anymore and his contact info was in the tape. So we called him up and said, Hey, do you want to jam with us? And, um, so he did, um, he helped us get going when we were writing a couple songs and then Chris's brother, Chris Bukowski was the drummer and the drummer file notice. His brother was Tom Bukowski who played guitar in Baphomet and later Carnal Dissection. And he started Half Mass with was the four of us. The first Half Mass show was that. It was Tom, Chris, me, and Nick Barron. And um, that, that was the first lineup of the band. But Tom, you know, he wanted to help his brother, but he wasn't really into, like, you know, where Final Notice was just, like, me and Chris were the only two straight-edge guys with Nick in the band it was like three of us were straight edge. It was getting more, more hardcore and less metal hardcore. Uh, even though it still was there, not as much. And Tom, it just wasn't his thing. So he bowed out after that. And then the two guitar players from Final Notice came back, and they were actually in the, the lineup of um, Half Mass. And the first Half Mass demo is essentially Final Notice with Nick singing. And... But Nick had way more input into the songwriting because he, I think he wrote two of the songs himself or at least had a lot of input in writing the music for. Um, and then 
as things went along, those guys quit again because they weren't really into, they definitely weren't into the more hardcore direction we were trying to go into. And Nick was definitely coming from a different place lyrically, which, um, you know, you've known Nick a long time. I love Nick. I'm down with Nick's ideas. I always thought Nick's lyrics, his ideas, his politics are awesome. But everybody doesn't feel that way. And they definitely did not. So soon the two of them quit. It was, again, it was just me, Chris, and Nick. And then somehow I ended up talking to Jeremy Smith one night on the phone, and he was like, I'll play guitar. And that's essentially what really started Half Mass to where it started turning into the band that people know. Um, we did the Sunrise demo, but then um, Chris broke edge and he quit, and um, which... Or did he break edge after that? I don't know. But anyhow, he ended up not feeling it because it was getting faster and he wasn't as much into playing the fast stuff. Um, and then we got, Jeremy got his, no. Sorry, I'm confusing some of it. There was a lot of mix-up of members. In that time period, Jeremy's brother Chris ended up playing second guitar. Then when Chris, when Chris Bukowski, the drummer, quit, they've got their friend Jay Jansetic who played with Jeremy's brother, Chris, and played with Rage to play drums. And then that's what ended up being the Influence 7-inch. Right, yeah, no, that's a, that's a completely different lineup than, like, the lineup more towards the end that you're talking about is the one I'm more familiar with. I didn't realize that, that Jeremy wasn't in a band initially. Um, and it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting you're talking about having to call people on the phone, uh, like, right out of a, a demo to contact them, too. <laughs> like, like that, that probably wouldn't happen now either, you know? Um, no, 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 yeah. Well, uh, th that lineup was the Influence 7 Inch and the Together 7 Inch. And then, but the Together 7 Inch came out after I was already out of the band. Okay. Um, in, in that period, I started Lockjaw, um, things with Half Mast were kind of deteriorating. And um, one, you, you know, basically we broke up, but then they got back together without me. Uh, there, there's a bit to that, but whatever it, I, it upset me at the time, but you know, it didn't take me long to come to terms with it, realize it was better for everybody. We're all still friends. We, we stayed friends pretty quick. It wasn't like a long, like there was no like grudges held about it. They were a much better band. Um, Fireside is a much, he's a far superior bass player than I am. And I think they wrote much better songs and did a lot more. And I'm really happy with what they did. Before we get into lockdown, another band that you had put on there that I that I'm not familiar with would be a uh, Solid Ground. Um, what are your memories from be being in that band? Solid Ground was around the at the same time as Half Mast when Chris was in the band. Me and Chris also we had a side band because while we were going for a certain sound. Like half mass was like a difference for me and Chris and what we were playing musically. So then we started another band with my brother singing and our friend Tony playing guitar, where it was going to be more like metal hardcore. And that was solid ground. And, uh, but you know, we recorded a demo, played a few shows. It broke up. It was fun, but there, there wasn't really much that happened out of that. I guess that does bring us to Lockjaw, then. That, that's the first band you sang for, then, right? Yes. And is that is that also the first band you played in with Sweeper, then, too? No. 
Sweeper was not in Lockjaw at the beginning. Oh, he wasn't? Uh, Lockjaw, no, no. How Lockjaw started was I was talking to this guy, Brian, and um, he um, he was playing bass. And, um, you know, we were talking about starting a band, and then there was this I, – I don't remember how we hooked up with this drummer. There was this guy, Shane, who was in this band called Skinned. And somehow we ended up talking, and I was like, you know, I, I want to sing for a band, and we got him to play drums. Uh, Brian was playing bass, and then Brian had this friend, Aaron, who he was like, well, Aaron's a bass player, but he can play guitar too. And um, so he got his friend Aaron to play guitar, and um, that's, that was basically how Lockjaw started. And um, that was the lineup, and then shortly before we had our – our first show was actually the last show I ever played with Half Mast. It was at, I was going to Villa Maria College, and I set up a show in the cafeteria there. And shortly before our show, our drummer quit. He wasn't into doing it, which is really no surprise. Again, he was a metalhead, and nothing against that. Like This was like a different kind of like metal scene, too, like more like a bar metal kind of stuff. <laughs> And he wasn't feeling what we were doing. And then somehow they knew Pat Bevlock. And we gave Pat a call. He was down to play drums. And then at least until the end, me, Aaron, and Pat were in Lockjaw. Um, we had some rotating bass players and uh, got a second guitar player. But that was how it started. And that was our first show. Then uh, after our first show, Brian quit, and uh, we were friends with the Threshold guys, and we I was I was getting to be good friends with their bass player um, Eric Johansson, who was in Threshold and Pride, and uh, he wanted to play. We got him to play bass for us, and that was our first demo. And um, it, it was a lot of fun. That's how that started going. That that was pretty much a solid lineup for maybe the first year of the band. So then, how? So I guess it was a while before Sweeper joined, then, huh? Right. So Sweeper, um, I met Sweeper at a show, and we started talking. And he said he played guitar. I was like, oh, that's awesome. I'm like, man, like, like I was like down to do things with anybody. Like during that time period like from final notice through lockjaw i was always like meeting people and trying to start new bands and i would have bands that didn't end up doing anything just you know trying to make something happen so i just wanted to do as much as i possibly could and um you know when i met sweeper like we hit it off right away and he was like i play guitar i'm like man you should you should play second guitar for lockjaw and uh when he came down to play the other guys weren't feeling it and I was like, oh, that's a bummer. So then him and I started Ceasefire. Because I'm like, well, I, you know, cause I really liked him. And I liked his guitar playing. I'm like, well, let's, let's do Ceasefire. And that's how Ceasefire started. was probably, you know, a year in the lockjaw. And then I ended up doing another band, again, with my brother singing. And uh, this other guy, JP, playing drums. And with Sweeper playing guitar. And that was Ceasefire. And um, Ceasefire, again, was a very short-lived band, but it happened during the beginning of Lockjaw. My brother and the drummer quit not too long after everything. And then uh, we ended up meeting this other singer, Josh, and our, the drummer, Scott. Um, I don't know if Scott's ever ended up doing anything else, but Josh 
was in Herod for a short period of time and policy 187. And we recorded the seven inch for fetus records with that lineup. And then or soon that all fell apart. But around the time that fell apart, Sweeper was hanging out with us all the time. So Sweeper ended up joining Lockjaw <laughs> <laughs> because once, once everybody knew him and in that time period, a different Scott, our friend Scott, who was ended up being the bass player to Lockjaw, first ended up being the second guitar player. And I think Sweeper originally came in as a bass player. And we're like, well, it makes more sense for you guys to switch. And um, and that's what ends up being like somewhere in that, like, you know, we had that year with Eric on bass, probably about half a year of things kind of us like reworking our sound, working on better songs and just doing that member switch up. And then that was a solid lineup that ended up recording, um, you know, the next four song demo seven and you know and everything after that was the band till the end yeah i was gonna say i think that's more the lineup that i'm familiar with because i had the seven inch obviously and the i think you guys put out a, a i don't know if it's a full length but there was a cd on what label is that moo cow or fist held high one of those labels yeah. you get we did a full length album on cd for up, upheaval records oh that's which what it was, was based in hamilton Ontario. yeah then we did a split seven inch hoods on fist held high and, uh, yeah, that that would make sense. That's the lineup, because that's when we really started doing stuff. Like, before that, we were just playing Buffalo. Right. Like, we played a couple of town shows with Eric, but we didn't really try to do that much more than that, you know? Right. And then, like, but with that lineup, and when we got when we got the opportunity to put out records, we started, like, working more to play more out of town and uh, do more stuff. And Doug Wade actually hooked us up with getting us. He's the one who gave, because um, we recorded, like, everything with Doug White. And, um, you know, our first demo was recorded in his basement. And then we um, we recorded what was supposed to be a full length. I, I don't know why. We had nobody to put it out. And we couldn't find anybody to put it out. But Doug played it for Eric Warner, who then called me up. And he was like, well, you know, my friend Matt and I are starting a label and Doug pointed us in your direction and we really like it. And so we released four of the songs from that recording as a demo. Yeah. As what ended up being the four song demo. And then we did a new record. We recorded four new songs uh, for the seven inch on Thank the Knife. I mean, that, I mean, Watch Out was just like a real good time all around again, like those guys, especially like Sweeper and Aaron are a couple of my best friends. Sweeper and I are in a band now. Aaron and I work together. They were in my wedding. Um, you know, it's like we're all, you know, I, I'm pretty lucky with all the bands I've been in. I'm pretty much friends with everybody from all of them. And, but especially Lacha, I mean, that's probably been, I mean, like a lot of the older hardcore guys I'm still friends with are people we made friends with during that time. Because um, we, we were really, you know, we were younger we were trying to do a lot more and um you know it was just i don't know it was a lot of fun but yeah so i think during this during this time you also were doing uh, uh what i would consider to be like a fun project band uh a-okay um <laughs> yeah how long did you do that band for and, and, and was that mainly just like a, a wave to get pat behind the microphone more or less yeah it was just i don't know how it started like we were just fucking around at practice and, you know, we just switched instruments up. And Pat, like, Pat's from Lovejoy. And anybody who's listening to this who knows Lovejoy, it'll probably make more sense. But they had this joke. 
uh, and, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, it's not very nice or whatever. You know, it doesn't matter, like, whatever. It was called Fist and Womb, and there was this whole story behind it that I'm not going to get into. <laughs> it's actually pretty stupid and juvenile, but he had this whole thing, and the way he delivered it, so we wrote a song about it, and then we decided, well, let's just write some other stupid songs. And we never, we only, we did record Fist and Womb, but I don't have a copy of that recording, but I think Sweeper does. And um, it was going to be a, a hidden track on the CD, but there's a whole lot of reasons why that didn't happen. And, um, but we, we would usually just like play that song at like the end of the Lockjaw set. But then our friend Steve and he had SBYC, which did all the shows at the time, and they basically booked every Lockjaw show for most of our existence. And he was bringing calls for alarm, and he's like, hey, does AOK want to play? Which AOK stood for All Others Killed. <laughs> and um, we're like, sure. So we got to play with Cause for Alarm, boy, fucking love, with a joke band. Yeah, I was going to say, I knew I had seen AOK once, and for some reason I thought it was the trial show that Sweeper booked in Buffalo, but that makes more sense. Because uh, my buddy Jake and I drove up. We saw Cause for Alarm two nights in a row because they played there. And then they played uh, a town kind of out in between Rochester and Syracuse called uh, named Canandaigua. Um, and I, I remember, it wasn't, wasn't Pat wearing like a ski mask or something like that when you guys played that night too or something along those lines? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Basically, we kind of like took all the stupid things that other jokey bands did and rolled it into one dumber joke. <laughs> Because <laughs> so, it wasn't like anything different for bands to wear like ski masks and stuff, um, or play in their boxers and whatever. And we like did all that stupid stuff, which wasn't really nothing about it was really original humor, we'll say. But it was still funny. I think I remember seeing uh, Satan's Helpers on a few flyers, but I never saw them play. Uh, what was that band like? That again, that was a little more of a I. I don't know if it was a joke band. It was an Eric Elman band. Um, and again, it was kind of like, I guess like a hardcore quasi metal mix. And, you know, all the songs were about Satan. <laughs> um, it, it was a straight edge satanic band. <laughs> and uh, something happened with their drummer, or not their drummer, their bass player. And then they asked me to play bass. So I played a couple shows with them on bass. All right, yeah, I was gonna say I don't, I don't, I didn't have much of a memory of that, and I didn't, I didn't, you don't, you've never mentioned that band to me before, but I think I either saw them in flyers or there was that that maximum rock and roll thing that book your own fucking life or it listed like every band. I, I, I wouldn't forget a name like that, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah. So not long after uh, Lockjaw broke up, you ended up starting the the band Killshot. Um, I, I I don't know how many times I saw you guys, but I remember at least seeing you on, in Syracuse at that trial show. Um, was, wasn't that most of the people from Lockjaw, but just without Sweeper? Or was there other people in the band, too? Or Yeah, and, and it, there was no Sweeper or Pat, because Pat quit Lockjaw. And at the time, you know, and that, it's kind of an unfortunate thing, because at that point in time, Sweeper wasn't quite into everything we were at musically, at least as far as metal went. Hardcore, we were all pretty much on the same page, especially me and Sweeper. But not metal and when lockjaw broke up me aaron and scott were like we want to do something just like straight up metal and that was basically what Killshot was i mean we were you know more hardcore leaning but we were just trying to be 
as metal as we could be. And um, we found uh, our drummer was Greg, and he used to play in this other metal band called Blasphemer, who they sounded like Show No Mercy era Slayer. They were fucking <laughs> amazing. And his brother uh, was actually Ryan um, from Drunken Orgy of Destruction. Oh, okay. And um, so that's how he introduced He's like, you know, my brother plays drums, and he's like, maybe you guys should hook up. And that band was only together for like six months. We recorded a demo, and then we recorded what was supposed to be a split 7-inch with Bleed for me. And uh, But then Greg quit, and he was just the kind of drummer you can't replace. And we were just like, fine, it's fucking done. And it was such a bummer because it was, it was like really intense and um i've never done anything like that again and it was a lot of fun just like just being like just fucking full-on metal speaking of bleed for me i didn't realize you had played with them um were you just was that another thing like satan's help or were you just kind of filled in for a while or no i was in bleed for me for a couple of years um what happened was kill shop broke up as soon as we broke up every time i die asked aaron to play bass and being very smart, he said yes, which I was really pissed off at at the time because I wanted to try and keep Killshot going. <laughs> um, and then uh, Jay asked me to play bass for Bleed for Me, so we had two, Bleed for Me had two bass players. Um, and uh, so I was like, you know, Aaron joined every time I die, so I was like, yeah, fine, I'll do it. Uh, so I picked up the bass again and started playing with Bleed for Me. And, um, you know, that was awesome. It's like, it was Joe Valella, this dude Guy, playing guitar, Chris Gajewski on drums, who I knew he used to play in Madison, and then Galvin singing, and it was mostly songs Jay wrote. And Jay, you know, he played guitar for Slugfest, who's like my favorite Buffalo hardcore band. So I was just like, fuck yeah, I'm down. And, um, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, but one, like I said, I'm not a very good bass player. I don't really apply myself, um, as much as like, if I practice more, I'd probably be a lot better. Um, and, um, so, af but after a couple of years and Jay, especially at that time was the type who would play any show. If we were offered to play any show, he would say yes. And because he had a lot of friends who were like in the bar metal scene, like at the Continental and the Atomic, they would have all these 21 and plus and up shows that would start at like, 10 or midnight so we'd be like driving our equipment downtown in the party district of the city where it was tough to find parking and loading in equipment late at night to play these shows and i just wasn't you know i got to a point where that was just exhausting that's not what i wanted to do you know bleed for me was a hardcore band but we were playing shows that at the time i was just, well you know it's not even at the time they weren't fucking hardcore shows uh we played a lot of great shows too but I started wrong, me and Sweeper started wrong the oppressor during that time. And when I got that going and we were starting to play more like the kind of shows that I want to play, all ages hardcore shows, what Bleed for me was doing was just exhausting to me. So I, I quit. And, uh, you know, I felt bad about it. But we just weren't doing what I, personally, what I would want to do as a band. You know they were awesome. But again, like like Half Mass, they got better musicians after I quit. Um, like after a couple lineup changes, Aaron actually ended up playing guitar and bleed for me then, and that's when they were at their fucking best. Um, and they are just an amazing band.
Nice. Yeah. And, and the Buffalo bar scene, uh, for those who aren't familiar with this area, they stay open until four o'clock. So that, that had to be pretty exhausting, too. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. It wasn't just loading in. It was like when we could load out and yeah. like get our cars into a position where we could even get our equipment to our cars. There, yeah. there was a lot to that, you know. Yeah. It's like I, I ended up DJing dance parties, and I've been doing that for 15 years. And I'm not moving a lot of equipment doing that. So being out till four in the morning and trying to get in and out of places is way easier than dragging around a big base cabinet and all that equipment and trying to get out of someplace. So, yeah, you started kind of mentioning Wrong the Oppressor. Um, I guess that's the next band we're on there. And I don't think I really put this connection together until recently. And maybe I'm the first one that's noticed this. But the band, the, the early stuff, especially uh, the first incarnation of the band, really kind of the music reminds me of No Justice. Um, have you ever heard that from anybody before? Have you ever noticed that yourself? I never noticed. I never, no, I've never heard that comparison. I mean, I guess it makes sense. We weren't influenced. I don't know if Reaper's ever listened to them. He probably has. They definitely were not a band on our radar until like way after the fact of us playing. Right. No, it's mostly, um, it's mostly the guitar. Were, yeah. The guitar tones. I was listening to it the other night. And I was like, man, that reminds me of, on the on the No Justice seven inch, the guitar kind of has a similar sound to it. Um, I mean, considering like our ages are all similar, we were probably all just coming from the same place. Yeah, you know, so it makes yeah. sense. We were both pretty active bands around the same time, you know. So. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that band a little bit more, though. Like, how how was that experience? And if you want to even lead into the band getting back together and tell the whole story, that's cool too. Yeah. Um, you know, Sweeper and I, you know, kind of like when me and the other guys from Lockjaw wanted to do something more metal, then when Sweeper and I decided to start something again, we wanted to do something just more straight-up hardcore, which, you know, basically if you took Killshot and Wrong the Oppressor, it's like blending the two sides of what made Lockjaw. Um, and uh, so we uh, we hooked up with our friend Ben, who was somebody I knew for a while, who played bass in this other Buffalo band, Firebrand. And I don't know how it came about, but then we got Joe Coonsey, who used to be in a Buffalo punk band called Chronic Panic, to play drums. You know, and we just started playing. Sweeper had songs. We knew what we wanted to go for. Um, and I felt like it just kept getting better, and we just kept playing more shows. Um, one of... One of the things that I didn't like about the band, just more had to do with me, was I had problems finding my voice and deciding what I wanted to do with it. Like, if you listen to all the recordings, you know, like our demo, it's just like me straight screaming. Then when we recorded what was supposed to be a 7-inch and a demo, I went in a different direction because I was listening to a lot of the nerve agents, and I really loved Eric's voice. And I wanted to try and do something similar to that. And it felt more comfortable for me um, as opposed to what I'm doing now, which is way more comfortable for me. And I'm much happier with because I, I don't know what anybody else's opinions are as to what they might think of each voice I use. But nowadays, I feel like I sound more like me. Like I'm not trying to sound like anyone. But anyhow, that's a different uh that's getting off track, but yeah, Romney Oppressor just started going and we just, we were kind of like all guns blazing, just trying to do as much as we could. Um, you know, we'd play Olean. Um, I, 
was dating Liz at the time, and when she moved to Buffalo, her, uh, Ruben, our friend Tony, uh, were roommates, and I think Chris Carrier was in the house at first, and they started doing shows in the 33 Tyler basement, so that made playing shows real easy, and we would play shows in the basement there all the time, um, which was really becoming like a big part of the Buffalo hardcore scene uh, between 33 Tyler and 99 Custer. And, man, we were just going, you know, like we were going to do a 7-inch with Fist Held High. Um, We played a Hellfest. We played Long Island a few times. We'd play out of town whenever we could. Olean, and then um, some things happened. And basically what it came down to was, you know, I was like 25, 26 at the time. And I became aware about how I was making the band and just hardcore shows in general, like my main priority and ignoring other parts of my life, uh, which certain people resented. And um, I I just, I couldn't do it anymore. And I I quit the band. Um, There there were some other tough times, like our, our drummer quit, Joe quit. We got this dude, Scott, to play drums. Uh, he was awesome. He was a punk drummer. Um, Mike Jeffers filled in for us for a couple for a couple out-of-town shows in Madison. And um, But, yeah, but after all that and just some other things that happened, I just had to quit the band. I didn't really want anything to do with playing in bands for a little while. Um, and then it kind of brings us up to today, even though there were some bands that happened between all that, where there were a couple of years where Mike Jeffers just kept bugging us, being like, man, let, let's just play one show. Let, let me play with you guys again, because he loved it. Like, he was, he had Herod going when he filled in with us. So it was strictly like a fill-in. I was just listening to his podcast. There was no misunderstanding, like, with the control. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, so he filled in for a little while till we got a new drummer. And, um, but, but he had a blast and nowadays he's just trying to play with anybody he can. And, um, so we were playing, we were playing, got a show set up and during practicing, we're like, man, why don't we just keep this going again? Because even if it's not for anything else, just hanging out and playing together in the discovery spot is fun for us, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. No, it's interesting that you guys would get back together. Uh, it seems like a lot of, a lot of kind of guys like that are a little older, like we are kind of you know, end up playing, playing like, again, like moment of truth, obviously. And I'm, I'm sure I could come up with other examples too, but, um, you know, what has the experience been like with you guys being back together now? It's been awesome. It's, it's a lot less stressful. It's like from when I was younger, um, you know, just, just in general, being in a band now in my forties, as opposed to my twenties is way less stressful because, you know, yeah, we want to do as much as we can, but, we're much more realistic about it. We have our limitations. We have families. We have real jobs. And, um, you know, so it kind of puts more of a perspective on things. It it helps. It definitely helps not have the competitive edge you would have when you were younger. Whereas much as we like to say, you know, we're all friends. And there's always kind of a friendly competition between everybody, you know. And sometimes people would, you know, and myself included, you know, you'd be like, man, why is that happening for them and not for us? Like, whatever, you know what I mean? And it's stupid, and you don't really see how stupid it is when you're younger, but when you're older, like, man, that was fucking stupid. And you kind of are easier, 
you know, when you're older, you can brush that stuff off and be like, hey, man, it's cool. Good for them. And you're just doing your thing, you know. So it's a lot less stressful doing a band now. Yeah, that's actually what Ben Keefe and I were talking about earlier today was, was kind of the competition when you're younger and, and, and how we change as we get older and kind of don't worry about that stuff as much. Um, and one thing, too, with the vocals, I, I definitely noticed uh, a big change in your vocals now, and I definitely think it sounds more like you on the newer recordings. Um, I, liked, I liked you screaming for Lockjaw in early incarnations of Wrong the Oppressor, but I do think that it sounds more natural the way you're doing it now, you know? So I think you're on the right track now with all that stuff. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely more comfortable. I'm I'm more confident in it too because of that. Yeah, and as far as I guess the friendly competition goes, I mean, you guys have been lucky to play some pretty good bills uh, since the band's been back together. So um, you definitely yeah, got that, that going for you. Yeah, that's like we really again we lucked out. Kind of like it's it's funny because you know when when we were our first run we played basements all the time, you know, and one of the reasons of that was because a lot of the basements happened in my my girlfriend and my good friend's basement, like they were all roommates. It was very easy to play those shows. We'd play a couple of club shows here and there. And now we mostly play club shows, which is aw- I mean, we played with some awesome bands and I'm very grateful. We usually play Mohawk place, but again, it's like I built a lot of inroads in the Mohawk place by DJing because I've been doing dance parties there for the past 15 years and they do really well. And when you do really well for a bar, they're, very happy to help you out when you need help, you know? And, but not, it's not just that. It's like, I bust my ass for them when they do show, when we play shows. Um, like I will put flyers up every, you know, I'm fucking 43 and I'm still on the streets hanging up flyers everywhere I can when we play a show. So, um, yeah. And it, you know, and it's paid off. We've been really lucky. I've gotten to play with Ignite, Slapshot, Sheer Terror and DRI all in the past year and those are like some of my favorite bands like of all time so yeah no i was pretty i was pretty jealous seeing you guys playing some of those shows in addition to having my son i was in a car accident last year so it was kind of hard for me to go to a lot of shows but the slapshot one was definitely what i wanted to see because i've never seen them play Uh, i've seen dri before but yeah i definitely want to see slapshot uh, when we're allowed to have shows again or whatever so (laughs) yeah um i guess backtracking just a little bit though you uh in the discography you, you had mentioned uh uh, the band Nowhere Fast, a.k.a. Bitterness. Uh, I'd never heard of them before. What was that band like? So, um, you know, I kind of went through my personal thing, and then I was ready to start a band again. And um, I was hanging out with, um, well, one, my, someone who I became pretty good friends with before then and stayed good friends with is my friend Tim Fletcher. Um, I was like, when I was starting to feel like band, I'm like, man, do you want to do a band? And he was, you know, he was down. And uh, at the time, I became friends with these kids who were in an indie band called Elad Love Affair. And we had a lot of friends in common. And they were some really good people. They were really fucking talented. One of my favorite, definitely at that time period, my favorite band. And they broke up. Their guitar player happened to play drums, Ryan. And he was down to play drums. And then somehow, I don't remember, probably just from, like, regular shows, I met the one guitar player, Pat, and I think he introduced us to the other guitar player, Terry. And that, like, another band in there, when I brought the idea up to these people, I'm like, (laughs) this is an idea I've had a couple times, and it never works out that way. I'm like, I want to do just, like, an integrity-style band. 
and not enough like integrity. Everybody was too punk rock. Um, so the first Nowhere Fast is very kind of like, like it started off being called Nowhere Fast. It was a very kind of like weird, tiny punk thing. And then um, as we were playing more, uh, Tim came up with a song that had much more, like he was really getting into bands like the International Noise Conspiracy. And he wrote a song along those lines. And we're like, oh, that's fucking awesome. And once we, like, learned that song and started playing like that, um, we kind of just went with it. And so we kind of had more like this, like, then we, we ended up changing the name to Bitterness. Um, it was a song, it was a band that I started doing, like, because that was, like, after Wrong Impressor. So as Nowhere Fast, I was still doing that kind of, like, Nerve Agents, Ray Capo, Youth of Today type voice. And when we got more rocky, I started doing the cleaner vocals like I'm doing in Wrong the Oppressor now. That's the first time I ever tried doing that. And, uh, you know, and I was very, very nervous about doing that because, you know, I don't, you know, it's, it's kind of a singy thing, but I can't sing. I, I can, I definitely can't, I know what I'm doing is not in key. I know I can't sing, but it's what fit the music. And it kind of took some convincing. It's like I remember when we recorded our first demo as Bitterness with the songs like that, and I did a mix of that kind of singing thing and screaming thing. And when Jeremy Smith, when Jeremy Smith heard it, one of the awesome things about Jeremy, even though people don't like this about them, him is that he's very honest. But because I've known him for a long time, and I know this, you know, and he just shot straight with me. He's like, you know, I like your demo but I think it would sound better if you didn't do the screaming with the vocals because it just sounds too forced, especially with what we were doing, you know? So, you know, I worked that out and, um, we were actually, we recorded what was going to be a seven inch on, um, my friend Matt's label. I, I really like, I, I forgot we were going to do it until I was digging through some old CDs. I can't find, I should have grabbed the, CD that had the name of it on it, but we were going to do um, a seven inch with him, but it didn't happen because unfortunately we we broke up. Like the other guys in the band, except for Fletcher, just weren't feeling what we were doing. They wanted to do other things, which what they did musically afterwards, it makes sense that they weren't feeling it, but I was really bummed because it ended up sounding like a band that I would never intentionally try and start because it's not the kind of stuff I really listen to, but it was a lot of fun to play. Um, I kind of came in a different angle with my lyrics than I normally did, because I was writing for a different style of music. And at that time, I was also getting more absorbed in like the indie rock scene and um, and what was going on with that, listening to a lot of those bands. So listening to that music really affected the way I wrote lyrics, which I think for what we were doing made it a little more original. Um, and I was really proud of, like, what we did and where we were going and how we were approaching it. But it just didn't work out. And it was a bummer. But So so I don't think I ever saw uh, Red Badge because I think that was the era where I wasn't really going to as many shows. But I, I definitely remember you being in that band. Um, I guess that's the last, like, hardcore band we'll talk about for, that you were in. Uh, so how, how was that experience? That, that experience was a lot of fun. That, again, it was awesome. It was a great bunch of dudes. Um, it was me. Um, the, actually the Jesse who was playing guitar and Herod, they were kind of like on a hiatus. And so he was playing Matt Backless, who's played in a lot of Buffalo bands. Um, he was playing drums. 
Um, my friend Ron Douglas, who's a really fucking good friend of mine, um, was playing guitar, and my friend Dave, another good friend of mine, Dave Jednett, who played bass in Three Below, which was a Buffalo metal band that I would go, like, we became really good friends. I'd go see them all the time. Like, it was it was kind of funny because um, they were kind of like, they were guys who kind of came in and out of the hardcore scene, and the people in the hardcore scene didn't really take them seriously, but... Um, they were a band I, even though I didn't really like them the first time I saw them, I kind of kept my eye on them and they were nice guys. And I just like ended up really loving them and I would go to all their shows. So we became good friends. I think, I think Dave's the person I talked to first about the band and he kind of rounded up the other guys to it. And again, like before it was a band where I was like, man, let's, let's try and do an integrity style band. And it, it, even though it was way more metal, cause it was all metal guys, um, the final product, I think, even though it didn't sound like Zero Tolerance's Metal Years, it's the closest thing I can kind of compare it to, because it kind of had that kind of metal and hardcore vibe, but not metalcore, like, <laughs> real, like, like metal and a hardcore singer, <laughs> which is kind of like what the last couple of Zero Tolerance demos were like, you know? Um, so it, it was cool. It was a lot of fun, but then Ron moved back to New York City. Um, Herod started getting back together, so we just kind of, I don't we we never broke up. Technically, we're still together. We just haven't done anything in about 10 years. So, Kind of shifting gears for a minute, you've, you've already referenced it a couple times in this interview. Um, I know, A, you're a huge Morrissey fan, and uh, an mm-hmm. interesting thing that I don't, I don't know if I've ever told you that, my sister is too, and she once had a cat named Morrissey. Um, now, awesome. you... Well, uh, I think you've had some dance parties that were associated with him, too. But as you've been referencing, you've also had a ton of indie rock uh, uh, parties. What's this experience been like for you over the years? And um, is it hard for you to, to be around that scene all the time, like being straight edge and stuff like that? Or is that really like no thing to you? Well, one, that's really nothing to me. It's like being straight edge is really like no problem for me. It's just like, like I mean, everybody has their their different things. Where, you know, some people are, then they're not. And whatever, you know, people have to. You know, people do their own things. They have to find what's right for them. And for me, straight edge has just always made sense to me. It's, I mean, it's like one thing. You know, sometimes I like to doubt. Sometimes I like to, you know, make jokes like, "Oh man, if only I drank when I'm at like a really bad show, it would make it more tolerable." <laughs> but realistically, it's like I never. You know, it's it's not like I don't feel any pressure to. And I think DJing at bars, I think they appreciate it because we're not trying to get a bunch of free drinks. We're just like a man, kind of a water or a pop, you know. It's like we don't, we're not drinking anything. We're not drinking any of their profits away. We're just doing our thing and you know busting our asses for it. And there's nothing getting in the way of that. Not that there's anything wrong with people who do drink. I mean, there's lots of people who probably do better who do. Um, I don't want to make it sound like that, but basically, it's never been. Nothing about it has ever made me think. Oh, I wish I drank. You know, the the temptation's just never been there. And it, the guy who I started with, Jay Draper, him, we're both straight edge. We've been doing this for, we're going on, like, next year will be 18 years, and neither of us have, we've been straight edge the whole time, still are. And we actually started by doing a Smith versus the Cure dance party. We were helping our friend Nick Moskal's girlfriend move, which... 
Nick Moskal is also AKA Buffalo show flyers on Instagram. And, um, when we were driving back, uh, you know, Jay and I were talking about it. We're like, do, do we think we could pull off a Smith versus a cure dance party? This was like when the whole like indie electro clash thing was starting to really kind of gain some steam. Um, and, you know, we were going to see bands like the Faint Live and stuff. And, you know, and it was all like dance music, but with like a punk edge. So it was very easy coming from where we were coming from to get into it, you know. And uh, we both loved The Smiths and The Cure. And we approached Mohawk Play. Like we were trying to figure out where could we do this. And we're like, well, let's talk to Mohawk Place. Mohawk Place did not have dance parties. They were a straight up rock club, live music club. I mean, they would have biker bands play there, you know, indie, they had a lot of indie rock and alternative bands play there. And I approached the owner, I was like, look, you know, I didn't really know Pete, but we, we sort of knew each other because he's the kind of guy who, he owned the bar, he worked the, the door, he, if you started going to shows there a lot, he knew you. Like, he would start talking to you, he'd recognize your face, you know, so and I approached him. I'm like, look, we have this idea. I know you don't do dance parties, but we really think that this would be something that would work out here. And and, and like I'm like, and we'd like to do it on a Saturday night. And the way he looked at me was like, if you're gonna do it on a Saturday night, you're gonna have to get like a hundred people in here. I'm like, I think we can do that. I had no fucking idea. I've never done anything <laughs> like that. There was like a goth, there was a goth club, the Continental, and they would have like dance nights every week, which, you know, we'd go to sometimes. And, you know, it was like, like there'd be nights where there'd be a lot of people there. I have no idea how many, but there's nights where it's super sparse. So we're just like, fuck, are we going to be able to pull this off? So we really busted our asses. Fly. We put flyers everywhere around Buffalo. We had no idea if anybody was going to care at all. Like, we really had no clue. That night, there was, it's February, there's a line around the corner. The club is packed. At the end of the night, Pete's freaking out. He's like, it was like a mix of happy and annoyed because he was like, it was sold out. I wasn't ready for this. I had one bartender on, and <laughs> it was insane. And, like, I looked at my phone afterwards because I couldn't hear anything, and it was, like, when we just had, like, little flip phones and stuff. And, like, yeah. my friends were texting me, like, can you get us in? We can't get in. And it's, like, huh. and then for that, it just, it's just taken off from there. And for a long time, we were just doing, like, dance parties every couple months, like, I think we were able to make it last so long because we didn't overkill it. We weren't trying to do something every week. We weren't doing something every month. We just did our dance parties at Mohawk Place like every like three to four months, I'd say. And um, eventually it turned into us doing New Year's Eve there. Then every February we would do the Smiths versus Secure, and we'd keep that as an annual event um, to make sure nobody lost interest. And like I said, and now we're going on, eight, you know, Mohawk Place closed for a little bit, so we had to shuffle the venues. We're now doing, even though I still do dance parties at Mohawk Place, and we don't do things nearly as regularly because that scene's died down, which makes sense. Stuff like that does, you know. We had a good run of it, but, like, my wife and I still do an 80s night. 
another friend of mine, a Rochester native, Aaron Andrews. Him and I do uh, Depeche Mode versus New Order dance party at Mohawk Place every November now. And now Jay and I do the Smiths versus Cure every, like, February, March at another club, Ironworks. And we just did our 17th one, our 17th annual dance party of that. And it's the most people we've ever had. It's, like, still growing somehow. Oh, wow, that's cool. Really, like, I'm super happy about, but for all lot, like, it, at the same time, it doesn't make sense to me, you know, because things peak. You know, you, you're used to things kind of following a certain trend, you know what I mean? But they're two classic bands that people love, and we, we, we like the bands. We do it for fun more than anything else. So I think that's what helps keep it, keeps it exciting for everyone. Right. That's what I was going to say. Those bands are definitely timeless. Like I'm obviously, I think, as you know, not as huge into that scene, but even, even I like I mean, my sister, obviously being a huge Morrissey fan kind of turned me onto that as a kid and the Smiths and then even the cure I've, I've always liked. And I think I've gotten into them more as an, as an adult. So I think, I think there's just a yeah. lot of people you probably wouldn't expect that listen to that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? And, and it's something you'll probably always have a, a fan base for. Um, yeah. It's like a huge age range. Like, like it's yeah. an 18 and plus dance party and it's seriously like 18 year olds up to people like I've seen people who have got to be probably at 60 there. It's, it's nuts. And it's fun too, because we both genuinely love both bands, even though we're each, like I'm team Smiths, he's team cure. And even though we both honestly <laughs> love both bands, we really like, we really like not bring up the rivalry more when it's all happening and, you know, take a lot of shots at each other in the bands <laughs> beforehand. Uh, but it's a lot of fun because it's all, you know, it's all good natured fun. Cause like I said, we do really love both bands. Right. So when so when the opportunity is there for live music again, obviously you guys will plan on, on keeping that, that going and stuff then? Yeah, I mean our next dance party, like the eighties dance party is not till September. So I I mean, I hate to uh be negative. I, I have a bad feeling we might not be able to do that. But but who knows? There's really no yeah. telling what's gonna happen with all this. It's this is all like new territory for a lot of us. Um, yeah. but you know, if, if there's a year break, it sucks. I had tickets to go see new order and pet shop boys in Toronto in September. And I'm not doing that now. Um, but you know, it's better that everybody's safe. If we all have to take a break from all that for a year. I heard there's going to be a 50%, uh, cap on venues to start. And, um, I don't think that's going to affect the, the Rochester hardcore scene very much at all. Cause our shows are never more than half full anyways. <laughs> Um, yeah. but again, like I saw the other day, there won't, you, you know, there won't be any moshing and, and like, I was telling a friend too, like when I went that, that judge show in Buffalo, it was like three or four years ago. And then, uh, Tara played here with knock loose two years ago. I got sick after both those shows. You know what I mean? I mean you just have like sweaty kids all over the place and, you know, yeah. so it's, it's one of those things where, you know, like you said, it's uncharted territory, so we don't really know what to expect, but I definitely think better safe than sorry at this point. And I think, I mean, even if there are shows like, I wonder how many people are going to really want to go to them too. You know what I mean? So no, I know what you mean. It's like when people are like, Oh, I want everything to open up. And I'm like, when everything opens up, I'm not going to be ready. Like I'm definitely not going to be ready to sit down in a restaurant and eat, you know? Yeah. I've been telling that to my girlfriend for a while. Cause we were talking about getting takeout and I was just like, I don't even think I'd want to do that right now. Like I got friends that own restaurants too. And I feel bad, but I'm just like, I, I don't like, I trust them, but like, I don't trust all the other people that have come and gone in that place throughout the day. And, and who knows, you know, what kind of germs there are not, not to be like a germaphobe, but you know what I mean? 
So yeah, everybody is. Yeah, I have no problem to take out, but I I do understand what you mean though. It's like I'm really like I'm not a germaphobe by any means. Like I'm I'm like a person who's like you know you gotta get sick, you gotta get dirty to kind of like build up your immune system, but that's not the kind of attitude they have with this. And yeah. it's like I'm freaked out about it. I'm and I'm a I'm a type one diabetic, so I'm like in the high risk factor here. So I'm. I'm paranoid about getting sick like I've never been in my life. Yeah, I totally forgot. I totally forgot you were a diabetic. I remember that from back in the day. I remember that, and I remember you and I both being a part of an exclusive club. Uh, we both got teeth knocked out at our uh, – I, I think you got yours knocked out at a hardcore show. I remember you having a, a fake tooth at one point, right? Right. I did. I did. I, I, the only reason I don't have it now was because it actually <laughs> – my partial broke while eating a chicken wing a couple months ago. And I was waiting for my tax returns to go and get a new partial. And then all this happened. So I can't yeah. go to a dentist. And so I've been walking around without a tooth for months. Oh, man, that's got to be pretty funny for people to see. Um, yeah. I remember I remember we were at an Every Time I Die show at Showplace Theater once, too. And you were like, it was like dark in there. And you had your hands like towards the floor. And you were like looking around like really like like for something that you couldn't find. Or I'm, I'm like, oh, crap, dude, you didn't lose your tooth, did you? And you were like, no, I can't find my pentagram necklace. <laughs> so. I've had that happen with my big tooth, though, before, too, where it's like popped out of my mouth during a show. And I'm like, fuck. Yeah. Yeah, you freaked me out the first time because I didn't know you had one. And you were like eating eating dinner at the Mercury Theater. I can't remember what show we were at. And I, and I looked over at you and you like mm-hmm. smiled. And I'm like, oh, God, I didn't realize you, you were missing a tooth or whatever. And you, <laughs> you know, so, yeah, my yeah. mine got knocked out a while ago. I might need to get some dental work at some point. But you know, that's, it is what it is type thing. Um, yeah. But just kind of circling back to straight edge just for a minute. Um, I always find it fascinating when people like you who are a little older can kind of hold on to straight edge. Um, is that something you have a stronger sense of pride with now that you have kids and they can kind of see that, that you're, you're still drug free at this age or. I mean, I, I guess I don't really think about it too much cause they're younger. They don't really understand that kind of stuff. I mean, when they're older, I think it'll make a difference. Like, I don't know if it's going to make them be that way, but it shows that there's other ways. It's like one of my things, um, even though I never question, like, whether or not straight edge is right for me, I guess to a degree, in a way I do, like, I always, like, I've, I've seen people argue about it online because people like to argue about everything stupid. And I'm kind of like, this is more in my 30s. And I'm like, well, you know, straight edge is important because it offers an alternative because I mean, and again, this isn't knocking anybody like to do whatever they want to do because everybody's different and they got to, you know, life's not easy and people have to, you know, deal with it however they deal with it. But when you look at it, it's like things like alcohol consumption are really around us all the time, whether it's in entertainment, billboards, whatever, and not to sound like cliche or whatever, but it really it's always there. And to me, one of the things is why it's still important to call myself straight edge is because it's me showing an alternative that you don't, that's not the only thing that's out there. You don't have to just do that. Um, you know, for whatever. And, you know, some people might decide when they see other people like that and the idea of it, you know, a lot of people they do, especially when they're younger, give it a try. And again, it's not for everybody. Um, you know, like I think about back, um, 
in like the early 2000s, late 90s, there was like this hardcore uh, home video that came out. And I remember they were talking to Zoli from Ignite. And, you know, he's not straight edge, but he was talking about how, like, you know, when he was a kid, when he was a teenager, he was straight edge. And how it was really important for him to be straight edge then and how it kind of got him through that because, you know, he would have been a fucking wreck if he wasn't, you know. And, uh, and I always thought that was an excellent way to look at it. You know, it's like some people, it can be a very important thing just for, even if it's just a short time in their life. I guess not including the pandemic, uh, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in hardcore over the years? I mean, well, one, I know a lot less people. It's, again, as you get older, you know, people get older that depending on where, um, you know, so it's, um, you know, everything changes. And my friend Guy and I, Guy does Press Gang Records, who's doing our 12-inch, we were talking about this because there's a big age diversity in, you know, just all the scenes in general. So we'll talk about it sometimes because sometimes people like to, there, or at least people did like to put it like there was like a big like rift between the young scene and the old scene. And we kind of came to terms, at least between us, that there's not really like a rift between the two. But it's like one, it's like when we started going to shows, even though like you're, you're a bit younger than me, so you started going to shows a couple of years later, it's like when you think about the difference between when hardcore and punk started, like 79, 80, and, like, I started going to shows in 1990. So there was really, even though all these bands seemed so old and so far away, there was only a 10-year difference. And now I'm looking at 30 years from when I started going to shows to now. You know what I mean? That's a much bigger difference yeah, no, of I, everything. Yeah, no, I've definitely and thought of that. So before. much more happened at time. You know, so it's like the way you look at the way – people who are younger are going to look at older bands and older people is definitely going to be different than the way we did because when it came down to it for us and the older people really weren't that much older, you know, and where now it's like, you know, it's like my, one of the, one of the best bands in Buffalo right now is this band exhibition. Okay. And their guitar player, his mom is our age and was going to shows when we started going to shows. Okay. That's like how these age differences are working now. It's like literally like the kids of hardcore kids are playing in bands and making the music now, you know? So that's like one of the big differences, Um, but they're fucking awesome, you know? And another, another side note to that is we also, realize that we didn't think that like sometimes like I think the younger kids thought the older people weren't as interested I know the older people definitely felt the young kids weren't as interested and I started being like oh you know I see much more of the older guys at the young kids shows right not not a lot but more than I see the young guys at, at our shows but then the more of the shows I were going to with the younger guys and I got more accustomed to seeing their faces I was like oh, maybe it's the same amount of us going to each other's shows. It's just, you know, you don't know who each other are. You know what I mean? You kind of got to get used to each other. And, um, but in a lot of ways, some things haven't changed. Like, like the night show, like science or big show, like why isn't this show all ages? And it's like, you got to, like, I've had to explain to those, to some of those kids. I'm like, well, 
it's not as easy as just saying a show should be all ages. It's like, I get what you're saying. I wish all shows could be all ages, but it's like when you do a show in a place like Mohawk Place, there's a lot of legalities around it as to why it can't be, you know? When you're doing shows at a community spot or coffee shop, it's a lot easier because there's not as many rules limiting who can go in there and where a person can lose their license. And when you have bands that have big guarantees, they can't play those small spots. they got to play a club where you can get enough people to pay them. You know, yeah. So, but but I think I think that's an advantage now. Where I think when we were younger and we would ask a club like, "Why isn't this all ages?" The response we would get would be more like, "Fuck you." <laughs> yeah. Where now, because we've been through all that and we're still here, we can explain to people in a reasonable way. This is why it is how it is. Yes, we know it sucks, but basically, it doesn't come down to us unfortunately you know yeah no that makes sense and i had kind of thought about what you were saying about the like you said like i got into hardcore like a few years after you obviously i've been listening to it for maybe like 24 or 25 years now and like obviously that's like it had not been around for 24 or 25 years when i got into it either and like i think i think we can both agree that if if like when we were that age like when we were like in our early 20s or even like 18 19 like if a show wasn't all ages we would have been upset about it but now it seems like like I've done a few shows in the last 10 or 15 years that weren't all ages and it really didn't affect anything. Cause like most of the people in Rochester that go to hardcore shows now are at least 18, if not 21. Like, I think there's even been some hardcore shows here that were 21 and over and it really wasn't a big deal. Like it would have been a big deal, you know, when we were younger, but now it's just kind of like, like obviously the scene's a little smaller here now too, but I just, I don't think there's that many people underage here that, that are into it now. And that's something probably to work on, you know, to, so that there will be another, like turnover in the scene, so it won't completely die here when the, when these dudes that are like like our age or older yeah. stop yeah. playing. Because I don't think like I don't think we're gonna have like a near. Well, maybe we will. But I don't know if some of these dudes in Rochester are gonna be playing like when they're as old as like Agnostic Front and some of those dudes. You know what I mean? Um, right. So hopefully we can find a way to kind of bridge the gap. And like I said, I want to start doing shows again when it's safe. Um, but I also want to wait till it is safe to do it. And you know, I'm like you where I, I I love going out flyering. Like I would go to all the colleges and I would put flyers up at all the record stores and you know, it'd be cool to be able to introduce a younger generation into hardcore. And obviously, you know, a big part of the reason why I'm doing this now is so my son when he gets older can listen to some of these podcasts and, and know like my roots and where I came from. I think it's always gonna persist though. Because again, there's like different facets to all of it. There's always people doing some kind of show somewhere. And just because that might not be something we recognize or gravitate to, you know, people want to say it's not the same. You know, it's not the same to us because we're not younger. We, you know, and fortunately right now in Buffalo, and it, again, it's one of those things that kind of comes and goes, we've got a good group of, like, younger guys and girls and people. Sorry, <laughs> I'm trying to like, use a uh, – I'm not trying to be, like, QPC, but just be real about it. It's a group of – large group of people we're younger who are doing things and it's like fucking old school hardcore and like good, like metalcore. They've got a great scene going and they're awesome bands. They're good kids. And, um, but there's also things like that happening in like metalcore and like the metal scene too. It's like these different groups of younger people doing things in different places. And we might not all be a part of it, but it's, it's happening. I don't think any of it's going to ever go anywhere. I think there's always going to be things bringing younger people into it. Yeah, no, I can definitely agree with that. 
Um, this next question might not be as easy of one to answer. Um, and doesn't have to just be hardcore. It can be any style. Um, if you had to pick a dream show of like four to six bands, um, who do you think would be on the bill? And it could be any era. You know, the band doesn't have to be together now, obviously, either or anything like that. Oh, wow. <laughs> dream show four to six bands. That would be a tough one. Because I'd probably want to go with bands that I've never seen before. And I'd like to preface this that even though I'm saying these bands does not mean I'd like to see them be a reunion because I'd like to say this as the bands in their prime. I, if I could have seen the Smiths in their prime, but I would never want to see them do a reunion. But if they did, I'd go. Um, EMF, who I was supposed to finally see in May this month, thanks to fucking coronavirus, I'm not <laughs> seeing it. I've waited since the night, I've never seen EMF live. I was finally going to, and now I'm not. And that fucking pisses me off. Elastica, another great English band who I would love to see live, whether it's a reunion or back when they were in their prime, whatever. That would be amazing. Um, side by Side, that would be a hardcore band that I've never gotten to see. Even though I did go to the Alone in the Crowd reunion last year, and they played a bunch of Side by Side songs, and that was fucking amazing and the closest I'm ever going to get to that. Um... I'm going to see them next year, New Order, because uh, I've never seen them either. And I think that would be, that'd probably be it. I guess Side by Side would have to open that show as the off band. Yeah, yeah, that'd be a weird, <laughs> and, uh, that'd be a, a good diversity. The rest next. of the band's all pretty fit together. So I guess kind of wrapping things up, though, um, I, I, I can think of at least one, but do you have any projects or anything else that you want to plug right now? Uh, no, I'm just, you know, we're doing, we've got, um, in October, we recorded a new EP, which is on um, Spotify and Apple Music, and it's going to be a one-sided 12-inch EP on uh, Press Gang Records and a CD on Classic Core Records. So that should be, we're getting all the final touches together to get the record pressed. Um, so hopefully, you know, if you're listening to this, give it a listen. We're really proud of it. We wrote... Um, some new songs. I'm really happy with how it all turned out. Um, as of the beginning of this year, Fist Held High um, got in touch with me, and they want to put out the record they were supposed to put out 20 years ago, the Picture Perfect Smiles EP, which was originally supposed to be a 7-inch and a CD EP. So we recorded enough songs for a 7-inch and a couple extra songs for a CD, but he wants to do it all as a 12-inch now. So... I know his goal was to have it out by summer, and that's not going to happen now, but hopefully by the end of the year that will actually have a vinyl release. Um, and then, you know, just yeah, there's really not much else. Everything else I do is, like, live events, so that's all on hold for the moment. And the wrong oppressor, the uh, the CD is actually available to order on Classicore now, right? Well, supposedly. it's supposed to only be available at our shows but um right now there are no shows and we haven't really discussed that all with press gang yet so we're going to see what what happens um i i don't know if that was just assumed that but i don't know i don't want to say the wrong thing because i don't really know what's going to happen they'll probably be able to get it on class look for it 
you'll probably be able to get it one way or another. If it's on their website and if somebody really wants it, they can email us or message us somehow. And there's one other thing I'd like to add actually speaking about that, which really has nothing to do with wrong the oppressor. I want to state this at the beginning of your podcast. So <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't listened to the new episode yet, but I've listened to the Mike episode and the Rob episode. And I just want to clear up some misinformation that was put out there on those podcasts. Not really on <laughs> But in the first one, when you asked Rob to introduce himself, and he said, I'm Rob, and he's like, but Mike Jeffers calls me Bob. He's the only person that calls me Bob. And then when you interviewed Mike, Mike said, well, I guess he likes to be called Rob, but I call him Bob. Everybody in Buffalo calls him Bob. Well, when Mike was talking about everybody in Buffalo is calling him Bob, everybody in Buffalo named Mike Jeffers calls him Bob. I've never heard anybody except Mike call him Bob. So, you know, let's just clear the air there. It's Rob. We all know it's Rob. Except for Mike. That's actually... Yeah, that's actually funny because, well, first of all, I remember the first time I met Mike, he was referring to him as Bob, and I was like, who the hell is he talking about, for one? Um, And for two, even when Mike said that everybody in Buffalo refers to him as Bob, I was like, I bet there's, like, one other person that refers to him as Bob, and it's funny you would say that it's just Mike that does. So, um, well, unfortunately, I did not do part two of the Mike Jeffers interview yet, so I guarantee when I do that part two, he's going to have something else to say about that now, too. So we'll bring it up. But we're going to keep it straight yeah. to the podcast. We can't talk about it in person at all, Mike. All comments on <laughs> Bob's name stay here. Oh, God. Now we're starting a little podcast beef. Um, so do you have any other closing comments or anything? Or does that, does that pretty much wrap it up for you for this, I guess? I, yeah. I mean, thanks for uh, reaching out to me to do this. It's a lot of fun. I'm glad to see that you're back and you're doing something. And, again, I'm glad to see that you're in good shape after the accident. Um, really good to hear from you and see that you're, uh, active and have things going on. I'm, I mean, I'm really like really relieved and happy to see that. And again, thanks a lot for doing this. It's always fun to shoot the shit about all this dumb stuff. That wraps up my interview with Bill Page. I decided to put it all in one part. I realized that makes the episode a little longer than we're used to but it made sense to do it that way after I edited the interview. I hope everyone's cool with that. Coming up, I'll have a few final thoughts, a preview of the next few episodes, and some shout-outs. But first, I have 11 songs from Bill's bands. First up is the song Sensitivity by the band Final Notice.
Next up, we have the song Undaunted by the band Halfmast.
Up next is Face Defeat from the band Solid Ground. The next song is called Out of the Fire by the band Ceasefire.
Next up is the song As the Truth Unfolds by Lockjaw. Now we have the song Often a Sense of Being Controlled by Alien Forces from the band Kill Shot. So 
Next is the song Devil Horns by Bleed For Me. The next song is Days Are Numbered from Wrong the Oppressor.
Up next is They'd Feed Us to the Lions from the band Bitterness. This next one is called The Three Storms, and it's by the band The Red Badge.
the last song I'm going to play for everybody is from a studio project that Bill sang on with Jay Galvin playing all the instruments. The song's called Conspiracy Notes for Everyone to Read, and the band's called Pale Day. Thanks again to Bill Page for doing the interview this week. I realize this is a dramatic shift in the format. So if anybody has any feedback to send, you're more than welcome to do so using the form on EnterpriseHardcorePodcast.com. We're getting ready to wrap up this episode. Here's an idea of what to expect soon. First up will be part two of the Jim Callahan interview. After that, you can expect volumes one and two of the small business series. A conversation with Rochester hardcore historian Greg Benoit. An interview with Ruben Lipkind and Mike Jeffers Part 2. Thanks to everyone for checking out this episode, especially those of you who have listened to all five. Thanks again to Rob Antonucci for all the help with the podcast, and as always, thanks to my family for all the support. See everyone real soon, and stay safe.